1: Well hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Anne Security for All. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. I hope everyone's ready for um, a week- another weekend. Um, as you all know, I'm in the Midwest and we're actually going to have some nice weather in the 70s this weekend. So time to get outside again here in the Midwest. Excited about that. As many of you know, I am also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We put on cybersecurity conferences all throughout uh, North America. I was out in Los Angeles last week for another in-person event. It was so great. It was packed. It's so nice seeing people again. Next week we are off to Minneapolis. So if you're in the Minneapolis region and you would like to join a great show, we have an awesome lineup of speakers from Freddie Mac, Sleep Number Cummins, uh, Sure Scripts, and many, many more. If you'd like to attend, check out, check out the event on our website at FutureCon Events. You can DM me and I will get you a free pass to that event. A big, big shout out to my uh, guest host last week. Jonathan Kimmet, who is the C- the CSO at the University of Tulsa, he had a guest on Andrew Lemon, who's a principal security engineer at Alias, and they were talking about the mind of a pen tester. It was such a great show. Um, I was highly intrigued, and I highly recommend you guys go check out that episode. It was really good. You could go to Voice America, and you can go to the Business Network and look for um, and Security for All, and you can catch. all all of our past shows. So we are definitely finding ourselves in a very unique times. Today we're going to talk about everything that's happening right now, the risk and the cyber threats from Russia, talking about government and intelligence agencies from all around the world. Of course, uh, this is all stemming from the escalation of Russia's invasion on Ukraine, and our hearts totally go out to all the Ukrainians for their peace and their safety we have always discussed on the show the risk of nation state attackers today i have two experts that i'm excited to get their insight on are we ready are we prepared for these nation state attacks we're hearing about them on the news how do we brace up what are we doing for the, these new wave of attacks that we're expecting i met my guest today i have two guests i met them at the future con event in dallas and um they i have the perfect mix of their expertise i have Randy Potts, who is the CISO at, um, and an information security leader at Real-Time Resolutions. And I have Pat Benoit. He's the VP of Global Cyber Conference Risk Compliance Business. Um, he's a business information security officer at CBRE. So I am excited for my guests. So welcome to the show, gentlemen.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: Hey, Thank can, you. So we have a lot to talk about in a very short time, and it's so interesting because I feel like everybody has a different point of view on what's going on right now. So I think that we should just, let's just start off and dive in, and let's just take a couple minutes to get both of your insights on your opinions of what's going on and what do you think we're going to start seeing as a fallout of what's going on in the country right now? And we can start with, how about you, Pat?
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. So, um, you know, the, there's a, there's really two different uh, uh, perspectives from my point of view with respect to the cybersecurity positioning in most of the companies. There are some companies who have uh, taken the approach that um, you know, attackers are attackers, exploits are exploits, and we're going to do everything we can to, you know, mitigate those kinds of uh, avenues of attack, no matter where they're coming from. The the other side is there are a lot of uh, companies out there who who maybe have uh, have not graduated beyond a lot of the perimeter security mindset, and so they're not they're not looking at things like zero trust uh, type strategies that and uh, in, in enhanced uh, identity access management uh, programs to try and uh, try and help with these things a little more. Biggest, biggest uh, condition in my, in, in, in my opinion is that, you know, when you look at some of the, the statistics, it shows, uh, I think the last one I saw was like over 90% of alerts that um, are received uh, have, have something to do with, some kind of uh, cyber uh, cyber nation state cyber attack, um, and and so and it's because they're not just going after other nation states uh, from an espionage only point of view. They're going after the uh, non governmental and infrastructure targets to try and disrupt or gather intelligence or or just uh, in some cases maybe destroy. And so that's a lot of time and effort and money that the uh, these nation states are spending on trying to get to our information.
1: So, Randy, what what about you? What's your intake, you know, input on what's going on and what we might expect to see? Um, It could be we might be seeing something right now while we're on the show. It seems like every time we turn the news on, there's a different story.
3: No, absolutely. I think, um, you know, whenever I think of nation states, I really think about someone who's got a lot of resources to put in this. If you think about your typical ransomware gang or, you know, the people who are out there developing malware, uh, it's almost a business model for them. So they need to essentially be able to turn a profit. So they're going to be a little bit more efficient in the way they develop exploits, whereas the nation states are definitely going to be more complicated. Um, and so really what you need to do is, you know, make sure you have really good hygiene uh, out of the gate. Um, you, you know, make sure you install those patches. Uh, you know, make sure you've got your endpoint security software everywhere it needs to be. And then, you know, like Pat was just mentioning there around identity management, you know, because that's going to be the next step is uh, trying to get credentials. And so, yeah, put multi-factor everywhere you can. If you can get to that sort of zero trust type of model, get there um, because what you'll see is even if you're not targeted as a part of infrastructure, something uh, you know specifically targeting you, you could very easily be part of collateral damage where there's a piece of malware that just kind of gets out of control um, and maybe it jumps from one network to the other. Um, another thing to think about is how you would operate if some of that infrastructure was taken down Uh, you know when i think about things like warehouses uh that have old systems in them uh they're very susceptible um you know if you look back to uh there was a a a big malware outbreak called not petty um you know and it really hurt mayor shipping really hard um, and so you'll see things like that where there'll be some collateral kind of fall over and it'll cause some issues in the supply chain. And so that's another thing just to think about your supply chain disruptions and where you could maybe have alternate
2: sources. Yeah. And, and you know, Kim, Randy brings up a really interesting point in that uh, when he talked about ransomware gangs, the, the vast majority of attacks that come through nation states uh, actually you know, result in or or trigger off ransomware kinds of events. And um, the ransomware gangs now, as a result of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, have started coming out openly and siding with wherever their allegiance may lie uh, as like self-proclaimed cyber patriots, uh, you know, and they'll go after the perceived enemy uh, of their own free will. So now we have the, the ransomware gangs jumping in to either attack, uh, uh, back-attack nation-states or to attack uh, uh, private entities that may show allegiance to the nation-state that they don't align with. Uh, and that's going to make things even more complicated.
1: What do you guys think? Why do you think that they have not taken down Ukraine's communication and their internet infrastructure? Do you think it's just to continue to gather more information? What What's your thought on that? You know,
3: so I think there's really something to that. Um, Even when you look at their traditional warfare, I think all of the traditional warfare people are kind of confused as to why Russia hasn't been more dominant in this war. Um, And I'm curious if something similar is happening on the cyber front, where maybe they just don't want to give away all their capability. They don't think it's necessary right now. Um, And so they're playing it a little closer to the vest. Um, It is interesting just from a strategy perspective, there's this whole idea of, you know, do I do my cyber attacks as kind of that initial fury to to try to take down some of the infrastructure or do I save it and do it later? You know, and right now all we're really seeing is like what Pat's talking about, which is there's these sort of private people uh, that are hacking each other based on their allegiances. And we're not really seeing what we're seeing more of this called hacktivism. We're seeing more of the hacktivism. Than we are seeing true nation-state attacks, and I'm not too, you know, trying to guess what Russia's doing. It's very difficult right now, uh, but yeah, I know they probably have a lot more capability than what they're showing.
2: Well, you know, you're also you're also uh, uh, fighting the thought of uh, trying to rationalize what may be irrational behavior, and so we're not really sure whether you know is it they're not taking down the infrastructure because they're, as Randy says, still gathering intelligence or or, or keeping it close to the vest. Um, is it that uh, there concern? Is there any concern that the the major players in cyber, the other nation states, uh, you know, US, UK, uh, EU, all, yeah, and so on and so forth, would would uh, rush to the aid, and that that might be uh, somewhat overwhelming, and so they're not they're trying not to tip over that that uh, uh, can yet. Um, there's a bunch of different possibilities, but I think in the end we're we're all trying to second guess and all the heavy duty analysts are trying to second guess what what what's the what's the rationalization that's coming from the irrational behavior of a of an invasion anyway
1: and last week right when it happened i think saturday i was watching you know, some news channel, they're all, they all have different views, but it was some brigadier general or something. He said that there was an attack that happened, but it hasn't been revealed. That was almost a week ago. So now I haven't heard, you know, who knows what's happening behind, you know, the CIA and all that. Have you, what have you guys heard as far as what's happening?
3: I I think the biggest thing I've seen, again, it's been kind of on the private side a bit, uh, but there's a Conti ransomware, C-O-N-T-I, uh, that was taken down, uh, I want to say a couple of days ago, um, and that was probably the biggest thing, and, and really this seems more like downfall of kind of the ransomware gangs fighting amongst each other right now, uh, which is very interesting. I think one thing that's also interesting is you uh, following kind of like the uh, InfoSec Twitter folks out there. Um, you see lots of talk about wanting to kind of do those like evangelism things and, and try to hack Russia. Um, and I'm sure the same thing's happening on the Russia side, trying to hack some of our, uh, uh infrastructure as well. You know, and there's some reports, you know, kind of like the one you just mentioned where nothing verified yet. Uh, but there's, you know, it seems like there's reports of kind of some pretty significant victories on that side. Uh. And it'll be interesting to see once we have a chance to decompress, you know, a couple of months down the road, how much of this was fact versus fiction.
1: Uh, real quick before I go over to Pat, I have a couple of comments and um, from some of our listeners. Uh, Trent Bunnell, he's uh, the information security officer over at uh, SAIC. He said, "Nation State," and, and thanks for joining us, Trent. He said, nation state attacks are scary, but after current events, I'm scared of the idea of crowdsource uh, attacks. Looking at Russia, rumors of attacks on electric vehicles, spy satellites, banking, and so on from the people.
2: Yeah, well, clear, clearly uh, uh, what we've seen has not indicated any hesitation on the part of Russia with respect to um, any harm that might be done uh, to civilians or you know collateral damage, so to speak. So, um, and 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 what we're seeing play out is this idea too that uh, it's it's much easier to conduct cyber campaigns, especially given the recent uh, times we've gone through with pandemic, uh, than it is to conduct uh, traditional espionage. Um, you know the techniques are uh, easier to invest in uh, techniques for the cyber uh, espionage; they're cheaper and 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 and. You you have greater plausible deniability, so that's all coming together to make that the uh, the choice of uh, of attack from from these kinds of nation states.
1: Well, I'm going to come back to John's question in a minute, but I just wanted to jump over to Alicia Johnson. She said, "I agree with Trent. And what if China and Russia team up to hack us? So many things to be truly concerned about. Is this a time though that we're in a big place of misinformation and disinformation. It just, you know, what's your thought on that?
3: I think so. I think it's hard to really know what is fact versus, uh, you know, somebody just kind of being a bit. Um, And so, I mean, what's interesting about kind of the internet technology in general is it does give individuals a lot of power to act. Um, And so honestly, I was thinking about this the other day and really thinking, I think the nation states actually have a lot to be concerned about, especially if you're a Russia or a China and you're alienating yourself from the world because there's a lot of really smart people in this world um, that are going to be targeting you. Um, And so, you know, I think that might be part of the lesson here is they're trying not to enrage people too much um, to kind of get that, uh, you know, hacker community acting against them. Uh, because it's really interesting, you know, I think it's the first time in a conflict, especially when you talk about cyber war, uh, type, uh, conflict where really anyone can get involved, uh, and decide to start attacking another nation if they want to.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll harken back real quickly to, uh, uh, sound bites of recent, the recent years in, in the U S and now we, we hear those picked up in Russia, uh, the Russian parliament, just I, I heard today. Uh, pass laws that prohibit fake news, and yeah, I did air quotes, even though you didn't see them. Fake news being broadcast by uh, any of the journalists in 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 Russia. There's there's and and it comes with up to like a 15-year penalty, a prison penalty, potentially, if you're caught publishing news that that the Russian government believes to be fake or doesn't agree with. Um, it still remains to be seen if it's going, if they're going to apply that standard to foreign um, journalists uh, also. But, you know, there, there's another whole aspect to uh, to uh, what's going on in, in the world.
1: Well, John Modlin, he's uh, the senior systems engineer over at Pro ProFitTap. He said, do you know how the government planned for black holing international DDoS attacks or, sorry, or are U.S. companies left to their own resources to handle?
2: Randy, I don't know what you think. I, I, I don't know that we have specific governmental uh, uh, action going after trying to black hole DDoS attacks. I think we are kind of left to our own devices in some in some way. Um, so I don't, I don't think I've seen anything along that line. Have you, Randy?
3: No. No, as a matter of fact, I mean, this is something I've talked about a lot, how Uh, You know, the FBI has a program that kind of does this uh, public-private partnership, and they're good for information sharing, but really when it comes to things like, especially like a denial of service, and if you think about just cutting entire countries off the internet, uh, there there really isn't a big mechanism for that within the government trying to control it. Um, And so you are kind of left to your own devices, you know, so so go out and get those uh, DDoS prevention services. Uh, if you don't have them you know you might want to might, might want to really think about how you would get it in place if you needed to
1: right Trent um, said, thought does that not make all wars from here on out a world war before a country declares war will they have to get the world's buy-in
2: or are, are we, we're, we're, we're essentially equating a uh, world war to global economy nowadays <laughs> it's just the same thing
1: and what are your thoughts as far as this whole um you know, fifth article, and if there is a big cyber attack, you know, what's your thoughts with NATO and is that considered a Article 5 attack?
3: You know what is really interesting about that is is you think about that and you think about, especially with like Putin threatening the, uh, you know, nuclear war and trying to do attribution is very difficult. Um, And so especially what if, you know, essentially you have this like hacktivist group and they're based in multiple different countries um, and they're coming after you. Maybe it's not, they're, they're not affiliated with the government at all. You know, do you still consider that an act of war when it's a private citizen group, essentially um, doing an act of war? You know, I mean, it, in traditional warfare, we don't all have missiles to fire off, uh, but in the cyberspace, I mean, all it requires is knowledge and a keyboard. Um, and and so that's a very interesting thing, and I think that's what makes us all nervous is how is the world going to react if there is a significant victory? You know, if somebody takes the entire power grid of Russia offline, how do they react to that?
2: Well, and, and we have to be careful, though, that we're not when we when we say NATO, that we don't just automatically assume world um, because. NATO is a specific group of countries of, of which Ukraine was looking to gain membership into. So, um, you know, I, I don't know that, it, that imposing rules and verdicts of, of one uh, organization that others don't belong to necessarily plays that heavily into the decisions that those others make. So, you know, are non-members of NATO, do they really care that NATO says it was a violation?
1: so going back to trent's question did we actually answer that before a country declares war will they have to get the world's buy-in
3: to answer it directly i mean i think yes i think if we're talking america even if you look at like iraq and afghanistan as far as wars i mean we were always trying to get that coalition of the willing going Um, And I think what you're seeing here with Putin is the world completely turned against him because they didn't think he had a basis for doing what he's doing. So I think even outside of the realm of of the cyber world, I I think if you're going to go to war with another country, you need to have a really good reason for doing that.
2: Taking over land, taking over land, at least seemingly has not been a been a reason uh, nowadays. But, um, uh, you know, he's he's certainly. Putin has certainly shown us that um, retaking uh, countries that he believed to be part of the USSR uh, is is perfectly within the realm of reason.
1: So tell me, with the CISO world, and I know you both are very connected to you know the CISOs all over you know North America or probably further, what is keeping you guys up at night and what what's, you know, what's your biggest fears at this point in time?
2: So we, you know, if, if you're a global organization, I think you have a little bit different uh, look. You're still going to look for um, places where y- you might see gaps in, in access uh, in, in those countries, Russia, Ukraine, etc. cetera. Um, I think what's been interesting to me is watching a lot of the companies that are Um, more say U.S. centric. Uh, They don't necessarily do business overseas. So, you know, they're scrubbing uh, off the, from the OFAC list and from, uh, you know, the 249 odd country domains that are out there, they're going out there and basically dumping, you know, 180, 190 blocking countries because uh, let's say they're a local bank, they don't do business, uh, you know, in in Germany or France or wherever. And so they don't have a need to allow that to happen regardless of whether it's considered an OFAC country or not. And that's fascinating to me that, that they're gonna hunker down to that degree.
1: Randy, what's your thoughts on that question?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are, Pat and I are in a lot of chat groups where we talk about you know kind of what we're seeing and what's going on. Um, so far, it seems like a lot of the same just a little bit increased in volume, you know, where we're all seeing sort of more phishing attacks, that sort of thing going on. Um, but I think the thing that really keeps me up at night in this situation is just that that unknown unknown. What's the thing that I don't know, I don't know. Um, and what's the thing that's gonna surprise us? Because, you know, we talk about, you know, somebody not unleashing all of their capability, but when they do, is that gonna be a capability that we, something we've never seen before and we're completely unprepared for. Um, I mean, that's the thing that really concerns me because we have a lot of great technologies out there to solve a lot of problems. Uh, but the thing that really concerns me is just somebody coming up with a completely new kind of attack vector.
2: Well, and especially given the loiter time of, of attackers, uh, you know, in, in a system doing reconnaissance before they ever make anything happen. So there's no telling in many cases what you might have in your environment that could come back to haunt you uh downstream when when stuff really hits the fan.
1: And Pat, I know CBRE is huge. I don't know how huge. How how, how big are you guys? Are you...
2: Uh, About so, 110,000 employees and the reported revenue was about 28 billion last year.
1: So, how where, where, do you cover global? Or are you Yeah, we
2: we have uh, about 450ish offices in 144 countries, so
1: Okay. So what, what's keeping you up every night? There's gotta be a lot. You're in a, you're in a pretty hard pressed.
2: it, It is. It's two, it's twofold though, because you have your own environment, which if you do, if you do all the things like Randy mentioned in the beginning, you do good hygiene, you know, you pay attention to the basics. You don't chase the shiny objects, all those, those good cliches that we talk about all the time that, that certainly puts you in a very good position. Um, you know, you have to ramp up your, uh, view of uh, data that may be trafficking in or out of those countries that are in question or the people that are from those countries in question, just to make sure that you don't, you don't miss something, you don't see uh, anomalous behavior. Um, And, you know, other than that, though, uh, there's a lot of time spent uh, responding to clients, to customers because all the customers have the same questions of us as a third party. Um, and so we have to answer it twice. We have to answer it for ourselves and then we have to create response for the client too. And, and that's a lot, of, uh, a lot of clients to deal with.
1: So being the global head of cyber governance, how big is your security team across the world?
2: Uh, you know, we, we have 85 to 100 people uh, in, in the team, which is really kind of small for the size of the organization that we are. Um, but, you know, we do everything we can to be efficient and effective.
1: And then, um, Randy, what, so what are you doing right now? And can you give us some insight? I usually start the show and kind of talk about what you guys um, are doing on a daily basis, but I just dove in. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what real time resolutions is doing. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. So we're a smaller organization, you know, we're 450 people. We're in three countries, uh, not 144. So I definitely have a little bit easier of a task, uh, you know, just to do those ratios, I have three people that work for me. So I've got four people uh, kind of working on that. And, and luckily I have a, a, a really good IT team that's kind of bought on to the, to the security message and helps me out a ton as well. Um, but yeah, I would say our biggest thing, um, we have definitely seen some novel kind of phishing attempts come in. Um, and so really leaning on the partners Uh, that we work with from a security perspective and saying, hey, can you dig into this? Can you tell us what you think is going on here? And uh, getting some expertise from them uh, to kind of try to prepare for those unknowns that are out there. Um, You know, and then also like Pat kind of mentioned, CISA uh, put out notification to most financial institutions and probably a lot of other folks. um, And that definitely spurned a lot of questions on, uh, you know, have you resolved all of these things that are on the CISA list, um, which are those sort of basic hygiene things. Um, and so a lot of kind of just having like good templated answers for that. Um, but then also checking with our vendors and kind of thinking about our supply chain resiliency as well.
2: Yeah. And there's the key because you know, the, the, the great equalizer for every big company is the fact that we all have vendors that may be a smaller company and that's the great equalizer across the board so if you don't if you don't have visibility into your supply chain and 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 some way to uh uh, manage that then then it doesn't matter how big a staff you have or how many controls you put in place
1: so going back to the whole theme of the show is you know are we ready for these attacks that we that are unknown um of course you know we want to say we're ready but where are some of the vulnerabilities, not even here in the United States across the world that we should be fearful of?
3: So, yeah, I would say the number one place where I'd be fearful is, you know, Pat and I and yourself, Kim, I mean, all of us, we're kind of biased because we're in the cybersecurity world. And that means the companies we work with, the companies we're talking to, they're all at least somewhat aware of the information security problem. They should be out there trying to, you know, do these sort of basic hygiene things. Um, The thing where I think we're not prepared is, honestly, we're in the minority. There's a ton of companies that don't think, that still don't think this problem's gonna apply to them. And so if you do see a broader sort of cyber attack, I think you'll find that there's a lot of companies and not just small companies, but there are probably some really big companies uh, that might be important, you know, that fall off. You know, I think, you know, out there, there could be some company that's making cardboard and, you know, they go down and now there's a box shortage and we can't ship things around just because nobody can get cardboard boxes. You you know, those are the sorts of things where I think we're going to find vulnerabilities is that, there's these smaller pieces that we really don't think about in our supply chains uh, that could get affected because they're just not focused on the InfoSec problem at all.
2: Yeah, I, I heard that today. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact uh, context, but uh, I think neon is, is something that an element or that it is produced for, for manufactured products, and most of it comes from Ukraine. And then there was some other, some other uh, aspect that was out of Russia the same way. So we, we see that trickle down throughout the entire supply chain when something like that goes on and creates a, a restriction of some sort. Um, so I, I think, how do you prepare for those things that, you know, are, are, are so trickled down? We're so interweaved and we're so mixed together again that, um, you know, this is that whole idea, global economy, world war. Uh, there's no telling where it's going to come from. Where I think we have done a disservice, in my mind, over the years, and we've been become better over in recent years, is that we've not spread that word to Randy's point, uh, so that it, it becomes ingrained in our culture and ingrained in just our personal lives as well. That cybersecurity is an important aspect of having the convenience of technology, and uh, so every chance that you we can take to uh make it more personal and and make it more attractive personally to individuals that's where we're going to get our biggest bang for the buck
1: and how are we going to do that what would your advice be to all of us that are privy to all this information because we are in this industry, you know, but it, it's interesting you talking about, you know, if if a box company gets attacked. I mean, that that's going to be a huge, you know, from from a company that all we do is ship all the time all over the country, as you guys do too, you know, what, what a disaster that would be. And all of a sudden, boxes that we see all over the place, you know, they become... Short, I know this is kind of a side note. One of the things since COVID, it's harder to find Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand that, that I like, and it's really bothering me, you know, that I might not be able to get Sauvignon Blanc. And that's, you know, that's just an example like boxes. You I know?
3: think, great example. No, I think through this pandemic, right, we've all seen, I mean, look at what's going on with the auto industry and the chip shortage, and it just kind of shows, you know, it's like, oh my God, there's this one company um you know that's producing all these chips and you know they just fell behind uh you know because of covid and then unexpected kind of hard to model demand essentially um and so you see how easy it is to disrupt that supply chain um and i i mean it's an incredibly complicated problem and i think the best thing we can do um honestly is just communicate with other people you know it's one thing i think about why this isn't more widely known. If you think about the InfoSec community in general or or technology in general, we're typically introverted type people and maybe we don't talk as much as we should. Uh, but yeah, when you're you know out socializing and you know somebody asks you what you do, you know, definitely make them interested in it. You know, I just had that conversation with somebody who was a you know an HR person um you know and he was like oh so that's like octa that's what that's what infosec is you know and i try to take the time to kind of educate them on actually there's a lot more to infosec than that you know this is why we're always on you about installing your patches about changing your passwords you know why you have that multi-factor on your device now um i mean i think that's really what we can do is try to get people to understand that it's more than just something the government makes you do to be compliant, that there's a real impact in the real world if you don't do these things, because yeah, you can start interrupting the supply chain.
2: Well, and Randy's heard me preach this line before too, is we need to, as technologists and cybersecurity folks to accept the fact that uh, move to the dark side and become salespeople and start to use some of the tips and techniques from a sales position. Um, when we talk to uh, our friends that are non-technical or non-cyber, you know, we shouldn't be talking in our own language. We should be telling stories. We should be using analogies. We should be making it palatable to, uh, you know, the average person um, and not, you know, not make it so mystical that they think it's, it's, it's some black box or voodoo. And, and that's, how, that's how we start to gain that kind of uh, interest and trust.
1: Yeah, usually when someone asks me what I do, and I tell them I put on cybersecurity conferences, they're always just like, "Oh, you must be really busy." You know, that's just because that's what they hear. They they may not real, or, or that sounds really you know complicated and. You know, Alan Alford, you know, he was on the show and I was talking to him about what IOT devices did you see come out at Christmas? What were, you know, did you see any that were scary? And he talked about that picture frame and Mm -hmm. my, my kids had actually got one and, um, I didn't really take it i was like and i tried to tell my kids hey you know one of my one of my experts on the show said that's kind of a dangerous device and they're like well i don't know how it's dangerous and then all of a sudden random pictures started i i unplugged it i don't use yeah. it anymore <laughs> you know it was a little creepy how these pictures started coming out there but again it's hard sometimes you guys are the experts but You know, it is hard sometimes to get into the detailed fact of, you know, how it it, it just goes over people's heads. So you're right that you have to kind of back up a little bit and try to explain it a little better. Well, it's kind of
2: an an inverted psychology, too, in some ways, because we also in cyber, it's one of the few times where uh, the victim of a crime will be further victimized by you know, regulations like GDPR and such like that, Um, you know, look at the the big to do about uh, like the the uh, baby cameras, the camera. I
1: was just going to bring that up. Yeah, go
2: ahead. (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, is it really or ring ring was a good example too, or zoom is a perfect example. Is it really that vendors responsibility? If they give us the functions in the applications to secure ourselves, shouldn't we take the time to learn it now? You can make the argument that eh, they should default it to most secure. Okay, I'll buy that. But beyond that, we need to take responsibility. And we don't have a culture of taking responsibility for cyber issues at this point, not at the individual level. And that's something that will have to change over time.
1: Trent has another question. And definitely don't be sorry, Trent, for um, commenting. We, <laughs> we welcome our listeners to chime in because we like your feedback as well. He said, um, but... Could you give me a comment on hiring veterans for cybersecurity? He's very big into veterans being a veteran and he supports that community a lot. Um, how do they fit into this profession? Last do you look to the veterans to help your organizations and how have they been, how have they, and how have they be value added additive, I
0: guess.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the veteran community is huge um i think just because of that background right you've got that kind of defensive mindset uh but also especially you know i have a friend actually i have two friends who are uh, uh, one who exited the government service retired after, uh, about three years ago and another one who's going through the process right now um you know one huge thing uh as kind of pat talks about gdpr and government regulation i think one thing if you've been in government service you have a really good ability to translate those compliance requirements into real world action. And I think that's huge, right? And that is above and beyond that kind of natural defense mindset that you probably have. You know, you probably have that kind of personality that you like to protect things, uh, that you want to go out and make things more secure, which means you kind of already have this aptitude Um, or or appetite as well uh, to go out and work in the security field. So that's huge. You know, we have a bunch of people who kind of want to get into InfoSec um, just because they're kind of in the technology field. They think it's interesting. Maybe they want a bigger paycheck, uh, but it might not be the best direction for them to go in Uh, when I look at the veteran community. Um, I see a lot of people who just already have that appetite to get into this and want to get into it. And so, yeah, anyone out there who's listening, if you need help, it sounds like you can reach out to Trent. You can reach out to myself, uh, Trent. Definitely, thank you for all the questions, and same for Alicia and John.
2: Yeah, and and for me, for me, you know, uh, being a veteran, also, I know Kim, Kim was a veteran, so um, I, I can't say enough about uh, how appreciative I am of the people that have served like that. But um, when it comes down to all other things being e- equal, certainly that veteran status is going to play very heavily with me, uh, not just because of personal experience, but because it does show a certain level of, uh, of uh, attitude and ability to, um, uh, to work in a system and work in a team. Um, I think the biggest one I deal with uh, with veterans is this, this idea of they generally are so mission-oriented that oftentimes mission takes precedent over everything. And that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is mission takes precedent over everything. Therefore, you have to make sure you help them balance out that, that uh, lifestyle a little bit. But uh, I, I think they are well suited to the cyber profession. And um, I think that they, they add a lot because they're also trained to think outside the box to get the mission done. And that, that's huge value to us.
1: You know, not only is Trent an information security officer, he does a lot of volunteer work for the veterans. I've had him on my show. I've had him at one of our conferences before. He's going to sit on a panel in Denver. But uh, kudos to him because he's out there helping the veterans that are trying to find jobs and helping you know, veterans that are struggling from war. So good job on everything that you're doing, Trent. I mean, we need more people like you. Uh, John said, what do you think of Anonymous?
3: Oh, I, go ahead. I, Randy, is, yeah. I think I think this is where it comes right back to attribution. You, you know, one of my friends on Twitter posted something this morning, um, you know, and somebody else kind of retweeted it and was like, look, Anonymous in action. And, and so he was joking. Oh, apparently I'm part of Anonymous now. Um, and so, you, you, I mean, Anonymous is so interesting because it is um, exactly that, right? It is anonymous and they are everywhere. And, and that's kind of what I think about, you know, we had that question about, you know, everyone kind of getting involved and kind of having that little bit of mob mentality in this. Um, and it's interesting because that mob can be anywhere in the world. Um, and so I feel like that's kind of what Anonymous is, is it, it, it is a global force um, and kind of anyone can jump in and kind of uh, poke that button. Uh, but it also makes it very difficult to try to attribute things back and say, oh, hey, Anonymous is really this static group of individuals, because I, I don't think that is the case.
2: Oh, no, it's the quintessential uh, crowdsource hacktivist group. Um, they, they they are unknown. and and uh, But the interesting thing to me is that they, they – Although you can't attribute it to individuals in the group necessarily, the group is pretty open about coming out and taking credit for things that they've done.
1: And Kyle uh, Cravens, hey, he's preaching to the choir. He said, agreed. Our veterans are some of the finest. No reason for them not to be on the front line here too. I feel like there's such a huge You know, I I would love to know the statistics of how many veterans are actually, you know, in the cybersecurity industry. And if they're not veterans, they're certainly from the, like the DOD, you know, just for working for the military. Do do you guys have any idea of that? Because it it seems like there's a ton.
3: I don't have any data on it. Um, But, you know, one thing I want to think about and something Pat said is that work-life balance with veterans because they are so mission focused. And I have definitely had that problem, right? Where I'm trying to push them to take PTO, to uh, you know, not work those long hours. Because I think if anyone who works with veterans, or, or really if you work with anyone who's really working really hard in this profession, the answer is the work never stops. Um, there is always something new coming up and... Um, you know, I think there's tons of talks about that, about CISO burnout. And it, I mean, a huge part of that is just, you gotta make that work life balance. And I think if you do have veterans, you work for, and you see them kind of pushing too hard, you know, try to help them put those boundaries in there. Because one thing that makes them so fantastic is they are very mission oriented and, and just trying to get that balance back in. is huge.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, uh. You know, I worked for the military police. I worked, you know, in just a lot of different jobs, which is kind of nice because when I went in the military, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I went in and enlisted and it definitely put that work ethic into me so I can work 24 seven. I don't mind working the weekends, but I definitely need my staff to take the time off on the weekend and refuel, shut your laptop. You know, not everyone can work 24 seven, you know, and. I'm sure you guys are working 24 seven, because you have to. (laughs) Well,
2: and there's a, I I can't recall the name, nor would I necessarily plug it just uh, openly, but there's a company out there that is working with veterans specifically. And what they do is they are locating centers of excellence near uh, military uh, installations, so that they can create an opportunity for those coming out of the military to jump into effectively like a training internship program in uh, cyber. um, And then uh, it be nearby where their existing uh, family life is so that they don't have to completely pick up and and upheave their family. And then they're using those as they graduate from this this training program. They're calling it actually a boot camp. um, And they're using those folks to contract out on projects for clients. And that's where they drive the revenue to be able to create the programs. Really interesting model, uh, but it exists out there.
1: Well, we kind of got a little off topic, which is completely fine. But, you know, you know, thank God for our active duty military because they're out there now and they're part of this everything. We don't know what's gonna evolve into our military and how involved they're gonna be with this crisis and this new war that we're seeing. But where, um, you know, as far as the, the you know when i was in the military there cybersecurity didn't exist the word wasn't even there so what portion of the military you know is protecting what's going on with these future hacks and, and where do you think um what is their responsibility where does their responsibility lie in defending us on a cyber level
3: yeah absolutely so i started my career in defense contracting um and that was back in uh, 2004, 2005. Uh, and I know you know back then information security was was really not a topic at all. And the things we were doing it, it was just it was never great, you know uh, And so I think things have gotten a lot better. Um, you know, I do have friends who who work the old now uh, and and I think things are getting a lot better. I think one thing to come to like give to all of those kind of people in the defense industry right now it's just you know thinking about kind of like those operational security thing and not wanting to overshare uh because there's probably a real temptation to do that especially up the inside scoop thing and uh don't you know we'll we'll learn later down the road it'll be okay um but yeah i think the main thing is just sure we can maintain our defensive capabilities because i think that's the hugest thing we have a very capable defense apparatus here um but it does kind of require everyone kind of doing their job and uh being able to be flexible with the chaos that might
2: come yeah well and yeah yes i i was kind of the same way kim although much longer ago than you um they they had no such thing as it or cyber in fact that uh, when, when I was in the military, the office, the back office environment was run on a Wang VS system. So that tells you how long ago that's been. But now we have, you know, we have U.S. Cyber Command, which is is something that uh, is is a, a huge uh, uh, you know uh, player in in the cyber world, of course, and and they they're you know divvied up into the Army Cyber and Fleet Cyber and Air Force Cyber Marine Cyber et cetera, and then but run by a central organization. And, um, you know, they have that mission specific to to uh, be involved in and and defend the the DOD infrastructure and then the support to combatant commanders and so forth. So it's a huge part of their, um, you know, just operational strategies uh, for the military as a whole.
1: So we have about seven minutes left before the show closes. So I want to make sure we spend these last seven minutes just really covering, you know, going back to what Alicia talked about earlier. You know, there's some fear out there. Again, going back to what advice just on a daily basis, you know, how, how to not live in fear and what is your advice to all the InfoSec people out there, you know, how, how we can make a difference from today forward.
2: Yeah, I, I'll say the same thing I always say, and, and Randy echoed this early on, is, is um, you know, stop stop chasing the next new shiny object and, and, you know, focus on the things that really matter, understanding your assets, understanding your hardware, software, data assets, um, uh, securing those, data protection is, is, is so important, identity and access management, uh, backup and recovery um, uh, programs, you, your basics are going to get you so far along the path to protection uh, that then you can focus on the that that incremental difference to to get uh, further along. And
3: yeah. Yep. Yeah. The one thing I would add to that,
2: um, you know, I kind
3: of scared a friend yesterday because we were talking about nuclear war and you know it's there there there's a real possibility of it. Um, And the nice thing about it is that the decision will probably be made during the daytime in Russia while we're all sleeping. So if if the worst does happen, none of us will probably know that it happens, um, which is a terrifying thing for me to tell you. Uh, But the real thing there is try to enjoy yourself. You know, don't get caught up in the fear and the stress. You know, go find something you enjoy doing and go do that. Kind of do those basics. Make sure you're maintaining that good hygiene, um, but you know, try to enjoy yourself as well, and don't get overstressed and burnout in this. Yeah.
2: with the EMP though, if uh, nukes do go off, uh, cyber's probably not going to be a problem anymore with no uh, technology left. So,
1: well, that's kind of a dreary, uh,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, dreary uh, thought. But so, say we have this. Uh, we well, hold on. It looks like we got another comment. Um, and it's from our friend, Trent. he just said uh, mastery of industry standards, which is exactly what you guys have been saying. But what about the, the box guy, the guy, the IT director, you know, and working at the box company, you guys all have each other, or you have a CISO community that you can bounce ideas off of. What would your advice be to that one man IT director that is playing all roles? Where does he keep himself um, informed and educated?
3: go to cisa.gov cisa.gov uh and follow the list of of what they have out there uh they do have a list i think it's about 159 kind of actively being exploited uh patches that you should apply uh so yeah if you're still running adobe flash turn it off you know if you haven't patched your windows stuff in ages patch it um if you can't patch it because it's some sort of system. Make sure you have a firewall and you're blocking all ingress and egress traffic to that device.
2: Yeah, CISA is a great, a great uh, resource. Um, you have the National Vulnerability Database, great resource. Um, when you start talking about looking internally, um, because you know we we tend to hyper focus on external attacks and exploits, but you know we do have the possibility of uh, unintentional or intentional insider risk. And in in that case, you have resources like uh, Carnegie Mellon's uh, SEI is out there, and they have all sorts of good resources. So there's plenty of resources out there for us.
1: And then what about, um, I know there's lots of, if people don't have time to do the reading and they can multitask, there's lots of great podcasts out there. What are, besides mine, what are some of the informative ones that you would recommend um, listeners to go to to stay informed?
2: Well, Randy, I mean, I, you might have different, but I'm going to stick with the folks that uh, I'm most close to. And so, uh, you know, the, uh, the CISO series with David Spark and Cyber Ranch with Alan Alford. And uh, I love listening to uh, Darknet Diaries. Uh, and, and, and those are, uh, there's James Azar has one that's out of Atlanta that's uh, really good. Um, those are the, the primary ones that I, I look towards.
1: Yeah, I would ditto that. All of those have, all those people have been guests. And I, I, I listened to those. Do you have, we're down to about two minutes. Is there anything, Randy, that you, any ones you want to add to that?
3: The only one I would plug is a good friend of ours, who's, who's a really good uh, kind of hacker out there in this world, uh, is uh, Chris Roberts. And he's got a new one called Dr. Dark Web that is coming out soon.
1: Yeah. And Chris Roberts is actually going to be our keynote speaker and uh, and he's been on the show before, but he'll be our keynote speaker in Denver in May. So love meeting all of you guys because it's I, I'm so lucky in this job to meet people like you guys that are, you know, t- making the pathway for all the, you know, attacks and every all the informative information out there. Thank you so much. Uh, Randy Potts So of real time resolutions and Pat uh, Ben. Yay. Did I mess that up, Pat? Was, Benoit. Benoit, I knew I wasn't looking at my notes. Global head of uh, cyber governments over at CBRE. Thank you guys for joining us so much today. I knew that hour would go fast. I have Matthew Runquist. He's the CISO over at Eclipse. He's going to be on my show next week. We're going to continue this uh, talk of uh, nation state attackers. That's one of his favorite subjects. So, Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of and security for all everyone. Enjoy your weekend, stay safe, stay secure. And um, like Pat and Randy said, try to have some fun and enjoy your time. Thanks everyone.
0: Thank you for tuning into and security for all.